Father, we come before you now, a very heavy passage that does weigh us down. May we feel its weight, its terror, its power, that we may find hope and joy and the refuge of Christ alone. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, as we begin our passage uh, here in verse 18, we... uh, want to ask the question with the the very first word in verse 18 is the word for, and you have to ask the question, the literary tool we like to use is whenever you see the word for, you have to ask what's it there for, so it's easy to remember what to do then, and try to say why is this important uh, to the rest of the the passage, what is the context? And so in verses 16 and 17, Paul is now tying to today's passage, and in 16 and 17, uh, he, he was saying that you need the gospel and you need it to be able to live by faith, that the righteous have to live by faith and that the gospel isn't there just to make us happy. The gospel is there so that we avoid what's to come, the wrath of God. And Paul's confidence all throughout verses 1 through 17, his, his joy that, that's uh, boiling over, uh, that, that's, that's getting him excited about the gospel, all of that is based on the assumption that human beings apart from the gospel are under the wrath of God. That if you don't understand the wrath, if you don't believe that God has wrath, the gospel doesn't thrill, doesn't empower, doesn't move, doesn't change you. So if if we just believe that it is all love, and we say, God loves you, and you say, that becomes white noise, and you say, so what? I know he loves me. He loves everyone. That's not what we're seeing here. This passage thrills us because we have missed the wrath of God, that it has come down and it has passed over us. And we get to see what that wrath is. And wrath, as Paul says here, is being revealed. And that word being revealed is uh, the word apocalyptatai. It's where we get the word apocalypse. And saying it's being actively now, being revealed now. And so it's saying it's apocalypse now. That God's wrath is coming down now. And it's saying that the wrath is coming from heaven. And adding weight to what Paul is saying. So it significantly implies that the majesty of God, of an angry God, and his all-seeing eye is now looking down on earth, and those without the gospel are under his wrath. Do you have a problem with the wrath of God? I mean, it sounds so archaic, right? Like, no way, we all know that God's a loving God. That, 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 is, that, that sounds so foreign to us to even talk about the wrath of God. And you, but we have to say that if you, want to be a love, if you want him to be a loving God, he has to be a wrathful God. If you want him to be a loving God, he has to care and protect the innocent. True love is going to detest the abuser and stand up for those that can't stand up for themselves. And so if we just tolerate if we just tolerate an abusive relationship, are we really loving them? No, true love steps in, and that's what God's doing here. He is stepping in. You might ask the question, but what if they didn't know? What if someone didn't know about God? Can they really get the wrath of God if they've never heard? And that's the, that's the excuse I use when I, I get pulled over for speeding. Uh, I get the, the 40 mile per hour in the 30, and I say, sorry, officer, I didn't know. It was 30. And obviously he says, oh, you're ignorant? Never mind. Right? 
says, of course. No, that doesn't work. And Paul's about to say one of the most profound statements in all of history in verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made and so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that no one can look up at the stars and say there is no God. Isaac Newton says the most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the council and dominion of an intelligent, powerful being. So that when we look at the, the, the wonder of, of how a, a, a seed can produce this giant tree, of how uh, the, the, to feel the thrill of the sunrise, to hear beautiful music and the melody coming and hitting you, and to see fish as they swim through the water in a school all together, and to see the birth of a baby, to see the logic of math, if you like that, the power of the roar of a lion, or the, the greatness, the immensity of the sea, of, or of a giant redwood, and say, these all have a purpose. They all, they all work together in unison. They all serve in the purpose. There has to be an intelligent designer. There has to be a creator. And this is what theologians call general revelation. The skies proclaim the handiwork, but it's not just out there. The, the prize of his creation, the crown jewel of his creation was human beings. That so much so that he put his image on you and me. So that Whenever we say, I want to see God, the closest thing we can actually say right now to seeing God is to the people to the left and the people to the right of you. You can look at them and say, that's the apex of creation. That's what God has said, I've set my image on. And so God has so graced everyone that regardless if you're a believer or not, everyone has got the fingerprints of God on them is what we call common grace, that this, this grace has been given to, to everyone. That this common grace is an act in which God actually gives out talents, wonderful talents to no, even non-Christians, and so that Mozart can produce something beautiful, and artists can produce something gorgeous. He also has the common grace to restrain sin so that if my neighbor's not a Christian, they may appear to be a very good person and say, man, that guy's just such a good guy. Because if they've, they've the common grace has restrained the sin. And we want to say it's common grace. It's not salvific grace. Uh, it's not uh, saving grace. It's ordinary. And that means that God's fingerprints is everywhere. And so that we can say with the arts, is it beautiful? God's fingerprint is on it. The music, is, does the melody ring true to you? That God is actually in there. That is the story just capture you? That the story of redemption crosses all cultures. And that God's fingerprint is on there. But it also means this. Above all, that no one can escape the truth. No one can escape this truth. That means that every single person from the creation of the world, every single person sees that there is a creator. And they say, they, they can see two things. That there is a God and that I'm not him. I mean, this is fascinating stuff that Paul is now telling us. He's saying that everyone sees the world 
and says there is a God. And so that changes how we see the world. That his fingerprints are everywhere. That changes how we see the arts, but that changes how we interact with our non-Christian friends. And we, we say, of course they don't believe, but we're, what Paul is saying here, what Romans is telling us, is that deep down they have this low murmur of belief. Deep down they believe there is a creator. It's written on their hearts. His fingerprints, he signed it. But here's the problem in verse 18. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. A, true that's, a truth that is true, uh, that is plain as day, a truth that you don't want to be true. You want to eat the steak? Or another image of food? What about a hot dog? There's a truth that you don't want to really know about. <laughs> What's in a hot dog? I don't want to know. I just, whenever I'm at a barbecue, that's what I'm eating. I don't want to know what's in it. <laughs> I think if I just choose the beef ones, it'll be better, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> the, the, the apologist Greg Bonson says it this way. Uh, when we try to suppress this truth, it's like taking a, a, a beach volleyball or uh, one of those inflatable beach balls and you, you try to suppress it underwater, try to push it underwater. And it's kind of hard if you get the bigger ones. And as you're pushing it underwater, it's, it's wiggling around, but it's, it's trying with all its might, with all that air, pushing it up. It's trying to let it come up. And soon it will pop up and explode in your face. And that's the truth. The truth, we are trying to suppress it so much and push it down, but soon it's, it's wiggling around, trying to come up, and it is pressing on the person holding it down that there is a truth, that, is, that there is a God, and it's going to explode and pop up in their face one day. Another way of saying it is like this. If you go outside after service and you say, you, I'm, I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm going to say, though the, it, it's warm outside, though I know this is a, contrary to all that I believe a, true about how the world works, there is no sun. I'm just going to suppress that truth because I don't want there to be a sun and therefore it doesn't exist. Okay, we're not trying to loft grenades at non-Christians, by the way. We're not trying to say that this is why they don't believe, just because they suppress truth. We're saying this, this letter is written to, to Rome, to Christians as well. And every day, you and I suppress the truth. We all suppress this truth. Every single day, we choose to believe and disbelieve truths about God and say, I'm suppressing the truth that there actually is a God. There's no God. There's no repercussions for, for my sin. There, there, there is no God. I'm in charge of my fate. And so I can become very anxious. Or there is no God that actually paid for my sin. Therefore, I'm very guilty and very ashamed. So we suppress that truth, everyone. And in verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul comes out and says that the root, the root of your sin problem is that you didn't say thank you. That we didn't say thank you. And you say, he's not saying because we don't have southern manners. Uh, He's saying that we didn't give credit to where credit is due. We actually stole and took credit for ourselves. And what happens, the result of that is what is called the noetic effects of sin, that it has now affected your brain. 
It has affected the way you think, and so you cannot think properly. You cannot reason properly. Our brain gets rewired to make one of the worst decisions ever, to make one of the worst exchanges ever. A few weeks back, uh, our youth had a uh, breakout retreat, and the theme of it was the Great Exchange. And on it, uh, we were trying to emphasize the fact that God has this great exchange, his righteousness for our sin, and trying to pound that, that, that idea a little further, we, we embarked on a little project on Saturday afternoon. And I gave them all a paper clip and said, I want you to um, uh, go out and take this paper clip and do the Great American Exchange and go door to door or store to store and get something bigger and better for your paper clip. And so they went and came something huge, something bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally they came back with some awesome things like, you know, giant TVs uh, from a paperclip, uh, a digital camera or two from a paperclip, a crossbow. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and then a giant uh, statue that I guess holds your keys that they named Bonnie, that they loved. Don't know why they named it Bonnie. But the point was to get bigger and better, to get something bigger and better. And what Paul is saying here is that humanity has done, has done the exact opposite. Is playing the opposite game of saying, we've, say, we've exchanged something awesome for something worse. We've, we've, we've taken the greater and want the lesser. And he says, we've taken the glory of the immortal and gave it up for the image of a man and for birds and for creeping things. He says, it's getting worse. Psalm 106 says, the exchange, the, cor- the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. And notice what's going on here. They're exchanging the worship of God for the worship of something else. He never says that we just stop worshiping God. I mean, it's very, very important here what he's saying. is, I have to. I have to. I have to. I have to worship something. We are creatures that, that have to worship. Tim Keller says that we are telic creatures uh, that have this, this purpose, that we have to have a purpose in life, a meaning, something that will hold our dreams and our hopes and our imaginations. And whatever that is that I'm working towards, I'm going to give my life to it. I'm going to worship it. And that's what's called an idol. It's anything for which we must have and we need to have to even like ourselves, to actually be at peace, to be satisfied. And so whatever that is, whatever has replaced God's throne is now your idol. And so what happens is we've, we've made that exchange. Every one of us have, has exchanged the immortal for, for a deadline. Has exchanged the marriage of a lamb to a fling. We've given up heaven for a house on the prairie. We've given up all of these things for drugs for people, for a person. And all these things are our idols. They're revealing to us what we actually worship. Now, are you ready for the scariest passage in the Bible? Verse 24. I deem it the scariest passage in the Bible. 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So the wrath of God, 
not his discipline. The discipline, uh, it's painful, but it it produces a fruit and righteousness in the end. That's not what we're talking about. God's wrath is letting people do whatever they want. God's wrath is divine abandonment. Discipline is painful, but it's a divine commitment to your good, to your help, to your recovery. And so when my boys uh, like to tightrope walk on the top of our couch, this very small little uh, section on the top of the couch, I discipline them, and I'm committed to them not breaking their legs. (laughs) I want to take them off, and I discipline them because I'm committed to them not dying. I love them. Wrath would be letting them go. They don't feel it as love, right? (laughs) They get very angry that I'm taking them off the couch, tightrope walking there. But God's wrath is him lifting up his hand off us to let us make those bad decisions and to tightrope walk on couches. (laughs) That God would let us lift his hand off of us and that the natural drift of our hearts is like a boat that wants to drift away from him. We never want to spring into his arms in joy, We want to go after the sin that so easily entangles. That's our natural resting weight. That's that's where we feel like we belong, is in rebellion. We want to live there. And so it's no wonder we say we want to be an unshockable community here at Redeemer because we know that's what our, our hearts actually want. But it's a huge wonder that God would even want us, that he has to hold on to us for us to not go away from him. And so the punishment for sin is actually the sin itself. The punishment for sin is letting you sin. And so for God to say, go, indulge in that cesspool, that's wrath. There's profound stuff going on here. Paul is saying here is the worst thing God can do is give you exactly what you want. The worst thing God can do is give you exactly what you want. Oscar Wilde, Uh, In his play, The Ideal Husband said it this way, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Really? You mean I can't trust my heart? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to seek life outside of him. Our translation here is the lust. Uh, ESV is the lust. The NIV says, uh, gave them over to sinful desires. Uh, but they both come from the Greek word epithumia. And it's the word there for an over-desire, an epic, an epi-desire. Uh, this all-controlling drive and need for something. And David Pallison says that the epithumia is the catch-all word for all that is wrong with us. That all that is wrong with us is our over-desires. And so the worst thing that could happen to someone whose idol is people-pleasing and people's opinion of him is for him to be put in the spotlight and to succeed. For him to come to work and to hear how great of a job he's done or at school how, how well he is or at home how great he is. The worst thing that could happen would be that because that's now gasoline onto his idol and saying, yes, that is me. I am doing well. I don't need God. That's where real life is. So let me ask you this question. What is your epi-desire 
that if God lifted his hands off of you, you'd drift towards. You'll know it by what revs up your emotions, what makes you angry, what makes you ashamed, what makes you anxious. There's an epi desire hidden in there. That God gives us over to this, and the first thing we run to, instead of the creator is the creature, and the first thorn that comes out of that is adultery. The consequence of their rejection was that disgrace has now invaded sexual relations. They exchanged the glory, the truth, the natural relations for the unnatural. And you say, why is, that, why, is, why is that the first thing that happens? And I think it's this, because all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, idolatry is closely tied to adultery. They're almost interchangeable. Because idolatry is exchanging one God for another. Adultery is exchanging one love for another. And saying that's where life is, and that's where the thorns come out and get twisted into unnatural loves. And let me read verses 26 through 27 here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And let me say this. This is the longest passage in the Bible on homosexuality. Paul calls it against nature, paraphusin against God's uh, intended creation. means it's, it's a violation of nature. It's not a cultural norm. Homosexuality, it comes from worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and so he calls it idolatry. But let me also say this, and I think this, I really want you to hear this. I want Redeemer to be a place where those who struggle with same-sex attraction feel welcome. That any here that feel that lonely struggle will feel that they're loved and cared for. Just as you who feel the lonely struggle in your particular sin feel welcome and loved. That we would be known for being compassionate and caring. Peter Hubbard, author of this great book, Love into the Light, I think rightly acknowledges the church's problem comes from four misconceptions about same-sex struggles. And the the first is that they're not like us. Their sin is not like ours. They're defined by their sin and that they can't change. When I think the exact opposite is true in all areas there. The exact opposite is true that we're all in God's image, brother to brother, sister to sister, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and so that every one of us but by the grace of God go I. And if we don't think, if it wasn't for the grace of God that our drift would even eventually even be to same-sex struggles, then we don't understand the need of our Savior, of how, much, how bad the condition is. Thirdly, we do get a new identity in Jesus. And fourthly, we hope in future grace and that grace is real and powerful enough to even change us. 
And so Paul isn't trying to rate homosexuality a 10 on the sin scale. He's not saying that homosexuality is the last stop on the train tracks to hell. He's trying to highlight the incongruity and the insanity of idolatry. It's a physical illustration of the spiritual condition. The bodily inversion reflects our spiritual inversion. And so man's greatest problem is not homosexuality, it's idolatry. That's what this passage is about. Now notice Paul doesn't dance around the issue. He doesn't say it's not a sin. He says, yes, it is. But he doesn't say that it's the sin. It's a shameful over-desire. And that list of over-desires goes on, by the way. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are all full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, having to come up with new ways, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And this is why we call this totally depraved. That all manner of life is touched by our sin. So when God lets go of the rope of our boat, that we drift away. Our worship of idols has produced these thorns. And this passage is, is essentially shouting. It's a tough, heavy passage that is shouting, Sinner! Sinner! God's all-seeing eye is looking upon you. And you're not just gossiping, you are a gossip. You're not just lying, you are a liar. You don't just struggle with same-sex attraction, that's who you are. But that's not, that's half the truth. That's half the truth. That's only half the gospel, that the list of wrongs that's listed here may have been true of me, but it no longer defines me. It's not me. It's not my identity. I'm a new, and I've been given a new name. I have a name. And it's not sinner. It is son and daughter of the king. I have a new name. I have a name, and I'm owned by him. I have a name, and I've been given life. I have a name. I'm the son and daughter of the king. I live by faith in the gospel that verses 16 and 17 are true, that I have to live by faith in spite of this list. I have a name. That list doesn't define me. It's not who I am. Author, singwriter, or songwriter says, Too long we have lived in the shadows of shame, believing that there was no way we could change, but the one who is making everything new doesn't see us the way we do. It's because we have a name. Today, do not suppress the truth. Not just the fact that there is a son. Do not suppress the truth, not just the fact that there is a God, but do not suppress the truth. And in spite of this list, that you are loved. That there is, your righteousness is in heaven. So as John Bunyan says, wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say, where is your righteousness? Because it was right before him. Because my righteousness is right next to him, and that's Jesus Christ, my righteousness, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his name has assured my name. His death has assured my life. He paid for my account. It's paid in full. Because I have a name. So there, but by the grace of God, I was a loser. I was a failure. I was a sinner. But no longer, because I have a name. And God has called me son or daughter. Let's pray.